Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Takeover. I'm Vlad and today my guest is Mr. Donald McIntyre, whom I've met from a previous interview which I've done. And he is probably best known in the field for his advocacy of Ethereum. After the DAO hack, he stuck with the Ethereum classic side. He believes in immutability. He likes everything that abides to the laws of nature. And when you talk to him, he presents himself as somebody who's involved in business and sales. But if you have a longer conversation, you'll notice that he has vast knowledge about issues such as anthropology, and he likes everything that deals with human evolution, human societies. I guess he's into philosophy too. And it's good to have him here and talk about what Bitcoin actually means in terms of evolution. So hello, Mr. McIntyre. Hello, Vlad. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I'm happy that we get to do this as the Bitcoin takeover is all about the issues which turn cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin in particular into a serious matter. We no longer talk about the mainstream media narrative of a Ponzi scheme or something that will collapse we actually look into the future and see what this type of inconfiscable uh, money that cannot be confiscated. How do you say? Mm-hmm. Confiscatable. Mm-hmm. Inconfiscatable, in I guess. Yeah. Inconfiscatable. We both have problems. We're both not English native speakers, so. <laughs> yeah. But what can having an asset which cannot be confiscated mean for governments which were used to confiscating and imposing their own mon- monetary policies. And my first question to you actually is, do you think that it was inevitable for us to get to this stage? Um, I, th- I think so. I, I never thought of that if it was uh, inevitable. When, when I look... Um, um, I'm just just to just to clarify uh, what you said about me in the introduction. I, I am I am just uh, an amateur, and I like uh, to to review history and anthropology and ethnography of different places, etc., to to understand the origin of things. But um, regarding that, what what I see is that in the last three three point five million years, um, we have evolved and the world was made up of small groups, the world meaning humans, small groups, families, and that they, maybe they interacted and cooperated uh, together. And then in the last um, 20 or 10,000 years after the, the, the last ice age, we, we gathered in larger groups. We formed like villages and towns and, and then with agriculture and pastoralism, uh, we became more efficient, so, we, so those small villages and towns became bigger, and then you had the, the bigger cities or city-states in, in Mesopotamia, and then the Greeks, and then the Roman Empire, etc. So, so we became not only city-states, but uh, nations, and then empires. No, um, so all those, all that evolution, I think, was in the last uh, maybe ten thousand years. Um, so this thing of having top-down government and top-down uh, law and rules and systems such as money, uh, 
either gold, coins, or fiat money imposed by, by top-down governments is pretty new. So in that sense, um, in terms of inevitability, I think that it is in, in, inevitable that we still have the brains evolved for the previous stage, not, not for these huge nations and, and cities that we live in now. For example, LA, 20 million people, the whole metropolitan area, New York, 20 million people. And then you have bigger cities like Seoul in South Korea, 33 million people in the metropolitan area. Uh, that, that's unnatural for our brain. So, so um, I think we have a, a natural tendency to believe in our individuality and uh, individual uh, liberty. Um, so um, that, that, that's what I see. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know whether Bitcoin was inevitable, uh, but what was inevitable is that we feel this uncomfort being in these huge structures and societies, uh, uh, which in a way uh, like blur our individuality a lot. Um, for example, millennials like to talk about uh, collaborating and being together and community and, and giving to others without expect, expecting anything in return. That those are ideals of small villages, really, that we're extrapolating to nations of 300 million people or, or multinations like the European Union that are like 500 million people. Um, so it's inevitable, maybe, the fact that we don't feel comfortable or that it's awkward. It's like a cognitive dissonance to live in these huge structures, but at the same time have this brain that hasn't adapt adapted yet. Because of that, I think that the cypherpunk since the 80s, starting with uh, Chom and, and then with uh, Tim, uh, uh, Tim May, May he rest in peace, and, and Nick Sabo, and Wei Dai, and, and Hal Pini, and all the other cypherpunks. They, they maybe rationalized this, um, and, and, and they were very strong advocates of individuality, no? And, uh, and they thought correctly, I think, that uh, cryptography would, they could build, build with cryptography these online uh, environments, where we can recreate uh, individuality and do, it, do the reverse. In, instead of blurring the individual, to blur the structures above, not the top-down structures. And I think that uh, in that sense, uh, Bitcoin is the response. But I don't know if it was inevitable. We needed a group like Cypherpunks to, to create it. Yes, sir. But I guess we have had this desire to have gold that cannot be confiscated for a very long time to have the kind of money that is only yours <laughs> and nobody else knows how much you're holding even though right now with bitcoin we have this privacy issue which allows anyone to see how much you actually own just by knowing your public key or tracking your transactions by ip or mm -hmm. looking at your browsing activity to see if you have checked any wallets lately so they can figure out how much you own just from these factors but the desire and i guess the idea of bitcoin is different from the current implementation ultimately it's going to be sound money which fulfills all the criteria and it's going to become fungible too if they mm -hmm. implement improvements that they already have in 
the plans and the books. Mm-hmm. And I think it's only natural for humans to desire to own something without being able to lose it by the force of somebody else. Yeah, If absolutely. You something and let's say we are in the primitive societies and it was all about the survival of the fittest and the strongest. If you're yeah. the strongest among your community, you're entitled to have everything, all the resources, everything that you'd wish for, you'd have it just by virtue of your power and your force. Yeah. And in our modern time, it became about armies or about charisma, the ability to move large masses of people. But you always had a way to freeze somebody's accounts, even in modern times, mm-hmm. to stop people from engaging in trade, in commerce. And basically, as long as you have control over somebody's money, you cannot say that they are completely free. Exactly. It, this is what Bitcoin does by excellence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bitcoin is definitely a top, a bottom-up uh, system. No, That means that it gives absolute power to the individual and, and uh, significantly reduces power of uh, a, a, any larger structures like governments, states, and other larger organizations, institutions, etc. Even, even legal system. If, if, you, if you have Bitcoin um, and, and you have your, your private key um, and you are good with your private key security, uh, nobody can do, uh, nobody can access that, uh, that money. Um, we, we are living in a, in a dual world now because uh, what, we're, what we're talking about is individuality and the fact that now with cryptography, we can have digital assets that cannot be confiscated. Um, is, is living together because it's just uh, being born in the last 10 years, it's living together with the other model, which is that all of our assets are in institutions like banks um, and they're protected by armies and, and the police and, and the legal system. We, we are very used to that system. The same happens with the privacy. Um, um, people are not very conscious that their assets are not in their own control. They're really uh, in the control of third parties. And the same thing with, uh, with our privacy. Uh, there's, there's like a, something similar happening there. We use Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, um, I don't know, Twitter, uh, and all these um, online applications uh, are recording our, our everything we do. No, they, they don't. I, I think that at this point, they don't even need to know our name uh, to know everything. About I think they, they even know more about us, our psychology, behavior, what we're going to do tomorrow, where we're going to go on vacation because of their analytics, much more than us. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, um, in terms of property and privacy, the current systems we have, we have completely delegated because of a false sense of security to these third parties. And Bitcoin is definitely absolutely the opposite. No? With a, as long as we have our private key, uh, and many say that we, we should also run our own nodes to, to, to verify that we are in the right network, etc. Um, as long as we have that, that property is totally a different paradigm. It belongs to us and we provide access to, to others in the 
old par uh, uh, paradigm, everything is in the institutions and they provide access to us, to our own assets. That's, that's the main change of paradigm that I see. Yes, and I guess as we both know from the philosophy of people like Nick Sabo, trust scales very poorly. And the more people yes. you trust, the more likely it is for your little secret or for your possession to get compromised in one way or another. So the only way to make it is to minimize the amount of trust that you give yeah. to people or institutions yeah. or anything that is led by humans. Yeah. Even yeah, in computer good. systems, I guess, it's better to have a minimized yeah. trust because as fewer as you have, the better you're off just because you don't store your data on too many systems. Yeah. Absolutely. The, the, the way it works now, um, now uh, we are talking, we're using Zoom. Everything is going through Zoom. And uh, we don't know if it's being recorded somewhere. Uh, and then they use that information to analyze our, our recording. Um, when, when we use Amazon to buy stuff, everything is being recorded on Amazon. When we use Alexa and all, all those home devices, any interaction with home devices is not between us and the device directly. Each transaction goes to the central server, the provider, and then it comes back to our home and executes the, 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 the instruction. So everything is totally currently delegated to third. The only systems that um, are decentralized and eliminate or minimize the third parties are, are, are blockchains like Bitcoin. Um, you said something about Nick Sabo. Ah, yes. When, when, he, when he wrote about social scalability, I mean, it was, that was an incredible, like, I don't know if you call it a discovery or insight that he had. And, and it's a paradox, no? Because to, to be socially scalable, meaning that a system can be distributed to everybody in the world or the most people possible, you need less people or less social intervention in the system itself. So that, that's interesting. Uh, because it has to do with the limit of our brain that I was talking before. Um, what, what, what he says is that if we have systems that are run by humans, we need to trust those humans because those humans don't have the ability to understand what millions of people are doing at the same time because they have limited brains, then the rules that they impose is basically to exclude everybody and only let in the people that they can control, you know, one by one. Uh, a system that works like that is the American banking system with know your customers. And that same system has been replicated practically all over the world. That means that if you want to open an account in a bank, just because they have these mental limitations, they prefer to say, okay, we don't trust you. So you have to prove to us that uh, you are a good person and then we're going to open your account. Um, and so you have to send your passport, your social security number, your driver's license, identification address. You have to send proof of where you live by sending other copies of, of um, uh, utilities, etc. And because of that system, a lot of people cannot go through that, or if it's very costly to go through that process. And there's a lot of people, even within the United States, there's a hundred, like 60 million people that are unbanked in the United States, in this advanced society. In Latin America, where I come from, 
it's the other way around. It's, uh, it's uh, here in America, it's 20% who are not banked. In Latin America, in some, some cases, it's 80%. Because of the same things, because, because the banks and the governments cannot control everybody because they're powered by the brain, by the brains of the officials. And um, those brains are limited. And because they're limited, they have to stop everyone and only let each one, one by one, checking them manually. And that is not scalable social. Imagine when, uh, if we could create a system that is absolutely secure, um, and you can trust that it's totally secure, but at the same time, it's not, it's not uh, operated by the brains of other people, but nodes in a decentralized network. In that case, anybody can participate. Um, because the, the rules are never going to be broken. Nothing wrong is going to happen in the system, even if no one with a limited brain is controlling it. So the difference between the traditional systems and, and these uh, now new decentralized uh, blockchains, now that, uh, that uh, they totally minimized these third parties that are so limited, uh, so anybody can use them. So the less social intervention the more socially scalable. But as I recall, you have mentioned a few instances when our privacy is being infringed by centralized services. And I agree with you that even this conversation that we're having might just be recorded on a separate server and they are in charge of it. And if somebody from the NSA wants to check the content, they can actually get a copy and Check for themselves. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We could, we could be, yeah. The, the intelligence agent, agencies in other, in this country or in our countries or other countries could be listening to us right now. Yeah, but I, I'm not sure if we are that interesting right now. No offense. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that, that is the, that is the the in a way the false sense of security that we all have. No, we we are we are so small and so insignificant that nobody's. Gonna, so I don't care too much about my private property or my privacy. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's an interesting uh, like um, analogy. What I was going to ask, starting from that point, was: mm -hmm. Do you think that now that we have a form of money which has all the qualities of sound money and cannot be confiscated and grants us a greater amount of privacy, is this step enough to actually desire for more and to enable the whole society to? demand for decentralized services or something which does not track them and become more cautious about all the services that maybe do not work in their best interest in terms of privacy at least? If, it, if it's enough, I, I think that it, um, for now all these decentralized systems like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Ethereum Classic, uh, Litecoin, uh, Monero, etc., um, they are the answer because they are top and bottom-up systems with no centralized control, etc. And, and they are a solution for, for money, no confiscation, uh, property, and, and also for agreement. Uh, whether, whether if that's alone by them, just because they exist, that, that is going to change everything, I don't know. For now, uh, only a few million people use it, no? Maybe... 20 million, 30 million, very optimistically 50 million people. 
but many of those still use intermediaries to access these systems. For example, they use Coinbase or, or Binance or other centralized services. Uh, many people use the exchanges as their wallet. So it's basically identical as the banking system. They're, they're basically putting their crypto in a trusted third party. So, so I, I think that at least for the very early adopters, it is the solution. And in that segment of the world population, the, uh, these systems just by existing is enough to, to turn around things. Um, just as a side note, um, for Ethereum Classic, where I work a lot, um, I, I see a, a lot of activity from Asia, uh, countries like China and, and Taiwan, South Korea, etc. The past of, of conflict and, and top-down control and 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 um, and uh, more arbitrary forms of government. They are very interested in, in Ethereum Classic, for example, as opposed to Ethereum, because Ethereum Classic constantly talks about immutability, uh, private property, the not reversing the chain and stuff like that. So they are very conscious about security, at least. Uh, the, the communities that are following this in those countries. But then we have the rest of the 7.5 billion people uh, in the world that are not very conscious for the reasons that we said before. They're very used to decentralized systems. They're used to being protected by the government, etc. So I think that we need not only for these systems to exist, but also for trusted third parties to continue to prove that they're not trustworthy. Uh, for example, when there is a breach in, in a bank, when there is a breach in a, in a cable company and they see that they, they stole everybody's identity, um, when there's breach, uh, breaches in, in exchanges like empty gox and many others that were hacked. Um, so, so maybe to convince the rest of the world to use, to migrate to these uh, much more secure systems that guarantee privacy and property and agreements, Maybe we need both things, not, not only the existence of the systems themselves and to communicate that with marketing, et cetera, but also for trusted third parties to continue to, to make mistakes and, and being hacked and, and being dishonest to finally uh, convince people of, of what's going on. Are you still there? Yes. So you said of what's going on and you stopped? Yeah, I, yes. What, what I was saying is that we need not only Bitcoin to exist, but also for people to see that they need Bitcoin. And, and for that, to see that, they, they need to see that the banks and centralized services are, are, are breaching their security and privacy. Yeah, this is exactly why we should say as often as we can that unless you own the keys and you store the coins in your own wallet, then you cannot say that they are your coins. Yes. It's very likely that they will be stolen or they can be frozen. And I even know people who hold coins on exchanges and they mm -hmm. try to withdraw them and they had a limit, a daily yeah. limit and a monthly limit. So if they wanted to liquidate their accounts and take away everything, they had to file... The, their KYC requirements and then answer the question, why do you want to withdraw, then wait for a while. So in a sense, 
this business model relies on the idea that you most likely don't withdraw ever. They try to give you incentives to stay faithful to their system. And when you do try to withdraw, they act as if you're doing something very wrong. And yes. actually, it's so much better to hold it with them because they pretend they have great security. They say yeah. they allow you to make instant payments. They make all these claims and yeah. they persuade you one way or another or even go as far as blackmailing you emotionally or intellectually unless you're yeah, determined yeah. to say, I have my own hardware wallet or a secure mobile wallet and yes. I'm going to store the coins in there. Yeah. I think that what you said is key that, um, that they offer instant payments, not only a lot of marketing, for example, JP Morgan, the last 120 years, they have been showing their building in New York as a, as a sign of, of strength. <laughs> and many banks do that, that if you see the publicity of banks, they show large, their large buildings, uh, and stuff like that, because in our small brains and limited brains, uh, we, we normally see that as a sign of authority and strength and, um, and credibility and, and solvency. Uh, the, the reality is that that building is worth, I don't know, 100 or $200 million or half a billion dollars. And uh, people have like $2 trillion in JP Morgan. So they're not going to pay anything with that building <laughs> if something happens. Um, but um, but no, so not only, not only are we having this uh, false feeling of security by having our money in the banking system and having our information with the, with the Silicon Valley companies. But what you said is very interesting. They also offer this instant gratification. No? When, when, when I use um, PayPal, it's immediate. So it's high performance. I can send $1 um, um, and to another PayPal user. They only have like 160 million users. Um, I say only because the world is $7.5 billion, so PayPal is not the solution either. Uh, but they, but they, they do offer this instant gratification and high performance. No? Uh, uh, for example, when, when we put our websites on AWS um, or run our apps and they all run on cloud services, etc., they're much faster. When you use Ethereum, for example, a dApp on Ethereum, you have to wait for 15 seconds send the money, then when you send an, a, a transaction or a instruction to the app, uh, it takes another, another 15 seconds. Not only that, for security, you should wait for 50 confirmations in Ethereum Classic, in Ethereum. Uh, or in Ethereum Classic, now it was, it was hacked, not hacked, but um, there was double spend uh, hacks this, this week. So now we're recommending to use 5,000 confirmations. So that means that these decentralized systems, the other trade-off that Nick Sabo said that exists related to social scalability is to be able to reduce the trusted third party parties and to be able to not use the brains of the trusted third parties which are limited. We need to, we needed, Satoshi needed to create this highly inefficient energy burning system to make it highly secure. That security means Inefficiency, like I said, and inefficiency means that these systems are never going to be as fast as Amazon cloud services or IBM, Google cloud services or PayPal 
or Apple, the Apple Store, or and all, and all those systems. So that's another thing that is like a bribe to us. Um, it's going to take a while uh, for us to realize our privacy, our private property, and our agreements have to be highly protected with no trusted third parties. Uh, and for that, we're going to have to accept that the secure systems are less efficient. Um, maybe use the centralized systems for smaller, more insignificant transactions. Um, but, but yes, the, the, the fallacy of the high performance, I would call it. I think it's pretty much the same with all the blockchains, which promise to have quicker transactions, faster validations, all these features, which actually are pretty much useless. And they pretty much legitimize their presence on the market through these features while lacking the exact fundamentals, which make Bitcoin great. So exactly. they're not really decentralized. They're not really permissionless. They have <laughs> a few founders who maybe had huge free minds, which made them rich. Yeah. It's a, it's a physical reality that if a system has to be completely decentralized, then it has to be more inefficient. It cannot be as fast as Amazon or PayPal. Um, so you, 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 you said it exactly as it is, exactly as it is. All these new blockchains are doing what um, Wasim Al-Sindi of Parallel Industries calls uh, decentralization, decentralization theater, which is basically they're acting that they're decentralized, but at the same time, they're, they're, they're promising the same scalability, uh, scaling and performance and, and storage capacity uh, as centralized systems. Uh, the reality is to reach those uh, levels, uh, uh, metrics, you have to be a centralized system. Um, so basically, they are, they are, they are doing this um, dual messaging and doing uh, decentralization theater. And that's why many in the crypto industry, industry including me, call them scammers. Because they, 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 they say, okay, Bitcoin uh, takes um, six confirmations, it's very slow, burns energy, and only does um, eight transactions per, per, per second. My system does a billion transactions per second. It's proof of stake, so it doesn't burn energy. And, and it's super fast, and, and, and you can do high volumes, and it's super secure. When that is not possible. So either you, or you are ignorant or a scammer. Yeah. And <laughs> we, we should get to a topic which concerns Bitcoin much more, because the more we get into scam coins and bad yes. project, I guess the, the less relevance this show has to have these important yes. discussions. And one of the topics which sometimes I approach with people I talk to regards to the so-called state of hyper-Bitcoinization, when you basically have mm -hmm. this immutable currency universally available and well understood by all of its users, and you can use it every, everywhere that you can imagine. It's basically the new standard for currencies all over the world. 
And mm-hmm. one of the disagreements which I have with them regards the idea of where it starts from. Some say that it starts from the wealthy ones in the developed countries who acquire large amounts of Bitcoin and from that point onwards demand for a higher adoption. Well, I sometimes think that it doesn't make much sense for them to buy much Bitcoin. It's actually those who need it that will use it more. It, mm-hmm. It's people in Venezuela, it's people in Palestine, it's people, even the 20% of the Americans who hold no bank account, they have a greater need for Bitcoin than everybody else. While somebody from Germany might, might buy Bitcoin and see it as a speculative asset, somebody else from Venezuela will just buy it and think, this is their way to transact with the rest of the world. It's their way for them to get engaged in world commerce and remain relevant on a market which marginalizes him as a citizen of that country which is in a bad political situation. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. do you think it makes more sense for the greater adoption to come from the developed side of the world or from those who rise and realize that they actually have a chance to overcome their problems and become relevant on the world markets through the the simple fact that they buy Bitcoin and they can use it for everyday needs. Yeah, your, your, your argument is that Bitcoin's promise promise is hard money and security. Um, and that currently people in, in country in like in North America and Europe, first now big investors, um, but they live in, in regions of the world where security and hard money is not such a problem as the other countries like Venezuela and, and the rest of Latin America, I would say. Um, so, so you, what you are observing is that it's not very logical that for hodlers, America and Europe have such large amounts of, of Bitcoin when the real use case is in Venezuela uh, with people with, with, uh, that are poor and they're poor because of their top-down governments, their socialists, etc., and, and they don't respect their people and their the individual rights and their, their, even their life in some cases, and less their property and agreements. There should, there should be the adoption first. Um, so in terms of the, the logic of where the need is, the distribution of where the need is, I totally agree with you um, that the higher need for this is in those areas of the world where arbitrary government and, and society and uh, is, is controlled in that way and property and agreements are violated constantly. However, the reality is that physically, the, 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 the way uh, the world works is that things start small and it's very costly to make it available to the world unless they go in, in steps. No? Um, so like any technology, it is first um, adopted by a group that maybe they are more te- technical um, or, or in the case of, of uh, products that need scale and investment, they're adopted first by a group 
of investors who are believers. Uh, I would say they are the early adopters uh, within within the elites in the world, no? In North America and Europe, other places where there's very rich people. Uh, I think that uh, the process for these to bootstrap these technologies or new products, when they need so much scale to lower the cost and make it available to the rest of the world, you actually need to go through this process where rich people are the first ones to buy it. It happens with, it happened for the airline industry. In the beginning, the, the, the term jet set was only for rich people because they were the only ones that could pay to fly in a jet, like in the 50s. Um, um, so, but today I can fly from Denver to New Orleans for $120, sometimes it's $90, depending on what airline I use, if it's a discount airline or more full service airline. Why can I do that today in 2018 and in, in 1950, nobody could fly uh, except for the elite because we needed this process. It is a very costly put, to put airplanes everywhere in the world, airports everywhere in the world fuel distribution everywhere in the world, be the first ones to use them. And because they use it, then it scales. And because it scales, then it's available to the rest of the world in a low cost. The same dynamics apply to Bitcoin. At the beginning, there were 10 and 100, then 1,000, but those people are the first people who believed in it. And they buy it. And those are the ones that bootstrap it. And then when it was worth $1,000 and $10,000 and $20,000, um, well, yeah, the rich people benefit and uh, the first people who, who owned it <clears throat> in, these, uh, in these countries because they saw it, it was available first. Uh, but the, it is needed to have these elites uh, to have access first, in my opinion, because they bootstrap the system. Once um, Bitcoin... Um, the rest of the world can see that these early adopters and rich people are using Bitcoin and they see, wow, uh, it's secure, look how it works. And they see all the information and now, and, and now it has a 10 year history. And when it has a 15 year history, a 20 year history, the, because of the Lindy effect, the more Bitcoin exists without reaching its security, uh, the more um, the world are going to be convinced that it's a secure system and, and the more distributed it's going to be. At the same time, all these rich people are going to use their, their wealth to, to create services, build apps, dApps, et cetera, finance, startups, and all that. So, so I, I think that the, the process is the natural way and um, I don't find that it's illogical that people in North America and Europe who are rich and elite are the first ones to have access. Because thanks to that, Bitcoin is going to be available in the rest of the world, in my opinion. There's also one argument which I heard, and it made sense, even though there is no way to actually know, that Bitcoin is the first financial invention ever to which the 1% elites did not have instant access. So at first, the ones who got into it were geeks and computer scientists who actually saw the potential in it. And the speculators and the bankers and the ones who own large amounts of fiat money actually got in at a later phase and they do not own such a large yeah. percentage. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know who owns uh, how much, but, um, 
but it doesn't surprise me what you're describing because Bitcoin is very, very uh, unique because when the internet came, for example, when I, when I started to follow the internet in, in the mid 90s and then the dot-com boom and I started the company, etc., cetera, uh, it was just a technology. It was practically free to use. What, what demanded an investment and what created the upside was to actually create a startup uh, with shares that we own shares, me and my investors own shares. And if that startup were to be successful, then the shares would go up. But the technology itself didn't have any economic, internal, intrinsic economic value other than what it enabled now for the startup to capture that value. Uh, in the case of Bitcoin, it's very unique also, I think, maybe a new paradigm where the protocol itself depends on a token and that token goes up in value. So the technology has the value in internally, intrinsic to the, to the token. It's even part of the design. Without the token, it doesn't work. Um, and without the token going up in value, it doesn't work either because you need, you need the value to go up so that more miners come in and, and the miners create more security. And because it's more secure, then people can use it in Venezuela and there's more demand. So the price goes up, but more miners come in and, and that's, the, that's the cycle now. So that, that's the changing part or the, the unique paradigm that these protocols have and Bitcoin in particular, which they have the, they have the token first. And so going back to what you described, if the technologists were the first ones to have Bitcoin, I don't know, like Halfini, for example, that, that's amazing because there was an overlap in that case. The, the tech geeks and the cypherpunks who not necessarily are rich, they just mined it and they, they had 100,000, I don't know, half a million in the case of Satoshi. Some people say that he has a million uh, uh, Bitcoins. Uh, and, maybe, and maybe they were they, are, they were and maybe they are still just geeks and they're not really interested in the money. They were, they were, they were interested in the technology. Uh, but then there is the overlap, this, this second group of people who say, wait, this thing was worth one cent 10 years ago, and now it's worth uh, $4,000. Wow, there, there's something here. So they're coming in late. However, they still have a lot of money, though, so they can buy a lot anyway. No. They, they, can, they can buy, uh, I think for $4 million, they can buy 1,000 Bitcoin, for example. Yeah, but that's not still the same. Ten no. years ago, if you wanted to mine bitcoins, you'd get. I think the block reward was fifty bitcoins. Yeah, and it was quite easy. You could do it with your computer processor. Yeah. There were no GPUs, no ASICs. Hardly any cost in electricity. Four thousand, a thousand bitcoins divided by fifty, twenty blocks. In twenty blocks, if you mine twenty blocks you would have Bitcoin. That was yeah, but you have, <laughs> I guess at the time you had to be either very idealistic or actually understand the technology. And even today, if you make me read the white paper, I can understand the ideas behind it, but the mathematics and, or the computer science part where it describes the hashes and how data is written into blocks, that's too much for me. Yeah, well, no, what, I, what I say about that is that Bitcoin is first about human behavior 
and evolutionary game theory and biology, and photography and engineering second. How would you define um, Bitcoin as a biological invention? Um, well, uh, again, going back to, to humans three million years ago, um, uh, for, first, all, all these ideas, they started in my mind because, I, because, because of uh, working with and reading Nick Szabo. No? Nick Szabo wrote, Nick Szabo is a brilliant person, not only, not only um, because of what he has written, etc., but the, the way he thinks. Uh, within the cypherpunks, I think he must have been a very unique member of the cypherpunks because the way he thinks is that, for example, with when Chaum and Tim May would talk about money in the case of Chaum and privacy and liberty and to creating a, a space for liberty online using cryptography, Nick, in, instead of saying, okay, I like those ideas and working on top of them, normally what he does is he says, I like those ideas. I am going to read history, human history. I'm going to research how human behavior works, ethnography, biology, etc., and why privacy is important in the first place, and the history in the, in the last thousand years, and why property is important, and why agreements is important. He even went to college in, in the 2000s, uh, like in 2005, 2006, he went to college just to study law, just to understand contracts more, more, uh, uh, to understand contracts more, uh, to be able to come back, back and to keep on uh, designing smart contracts and all that. So that way of thinking and that dedication that he's, he has is incredible. So from there, that attitude, and when I read, when I read uh, Shelling Out, uh, where he explains money, where he did all of these that I just described, he did all this, and he said, okay, Chaum says that we need online money and privacy. I read everything about money and the history of money, and now I understand why, and this is the Selling out you know, the origin of money. Uh, in that, in that, um, now going back to why I think um, it, in that paper, uh, shelling out, uh, Nick not only talks about money for how it's formally defined by economists, but then he goes further and he said and and he and and he goes in history to see how money. Uh, was used in the past by by our ancestors in the last ten thousand years. He studies ethnography, so he goes he goes local tribes from original information. For example, the Yurok in in Northern California, how they used money uh, thousands of years ago. Uh, it was shell money. It, it, I think they're called dentines or dent something like that. It's a, it's a special shell that they got from further north, an island in, in, uh, in front of Vancouver. Uh, and then he studied um, prehistory, because if, if money today is fiat, and before was gold, and before was shells, then if you go, keep going backwards, doing the regression analysis, you, you're going to re reach a point where, where the origin was. And, and Nick... Um, found that in, for example, in North America, when the Europeans came, they were using wampum, which was these belts. Then in, in South America, the Incas, they were using clothing. And, and, and in, uh, in Africa they were, and the uh, Middle East and 
China that were using um, um, like uh, flints, no, like knives and points made of stone. And, and, and when he saw that, he said, okay, money is about trust minimization. If economists say that money is used to, to, to instead of bark, to change money for uh, a product, and before that money was a commodity, I can see that if flint, shells, salt, and all these forms of money were commodities that we, uh, and, and uh, uh, as money, there, there is a connection there and a, and a, and, and a regression. Uh, then after that, he, um, I know, then uh, what he said is, then this is about trust. At the same time, he studied that uh, the, the brain is limited and we only have capacity to have trust, trustful relationships uh, between 150 people, more or less, us and 150 people. That means that groups in the past, when they reached to act with larger groups or other groups, they were normally not trusted. So evidently, they must have used money as a bridge between the two untrusting groups because money settled the transactions immediately and you didn't need any trust. So that's how uh, I think Nick came to the conclusion that money was a trust minimization device. And that, I think, already... Um, was parallel to things that he had already studied, which was that in computer systems and what cypherpunks were trying to do is to actually reduce the influence of the trusted third party. So there was a link between money and trusted third parties. Money is a device to reduce trust in others. Cryptography and decentralized computing is a device to reduce trust in others. The security hole are the trusted third party. Uh, how is it linked to biology? In the same paper, um, Nick does a citation of Richard Dawkins and his explanation of recipro reciprocal altruism in social animals. Um, and that means that when an animal does something for the other, it is studied and confirmed, and it's a fact, that it's because they have the expectation that other one is going to do something for them. And the payoff in the long term is that their genes are going to be more successful in the future, on average. Um, so um, this is connected uh, to our biology because evidently um, in the past, at some point in the past, when we, we don't see that animals use money, only humans use money. So we were, we were interacting into groups, but we need device to interact in, with other groups because we didn't, we didn't share genes, so there was no interest. We actually wanted the other groups to disappear because they were competitors. Um, so um, it is very possible that when we created the first stone tools 3.3 million years ago, this is my theory now, we felt value. We evolved in our brains the capacity to feel subjective value for those tools, not only because of their um, physical use or functional use, uh, but also extra value just holding them and for their shape, for example. Because of that um, subjective feeling of value for tools that we evolved and the others also evolved in time, um, 
when, when Alice meets Bob three million years ago, and they didn't trust each other, but Alice had meat, um, and Bob didn't have anything, Alice would say, hey, but in your, hand, in, in your hand, you have a stone tool. Maybe you can give me your stone tool, and I'll give you the meat that you need. If not, uh, I'm not going to do anything uh, with you because I don't trust you that you're going to reciprocate, and you don't have my genes. So I, I'm not interested in your genes being uh, perpetuated. So, so maybe at that point, um, uh, the other one said, okay, I'll give you my stone tool, and you give me the meat. That was enabled. And that was the first time probably that money was used in a, in a very archaic way. And that's the connection to our biology. Our, in terms of biology, it's because we evolved genetically to feel subjected value for objects other than their function. Um, and then the connection to money is that they, they, they were used. Uh, once we felt that subjected value, we would accept that um, to cancel a debt immediately. So we would use it in exchange for other things. I don't know if it was too confusing. No, this is actually fascinating. And I don't think, even though I've read the article by Nick Sabo, I don't mm -hmm. think I thought about it in these terms. Mm -hmm. I guess this outline of all the ideas, because as you know, the articles are pretty long and sometimes it's easy to get lost in the ideas or maybe stop yeah. for a while and just think about it. Yeah, I, I, always say, I always say and I tell Nick that I have to read his articles like 30 times <laughs> because there's so much information in each page and each paragraph. And, and I tell other people that it's great to read Nick Sabo's articles because one article is like six months of university courses. They have so much information. <laughs> oh, yes. And in a way, that's the advantage of quality reading. If you find something which is filled with information and you have the power to process it, I don't think, I don't think it's easy to read something on the unenumerated his blog. But once you get at least to understand some important concepts, at first when I discovered it, I was overwhelmed Mm -hmm. And a lot of people in the space, they like to brag about how they read it and how they were influenced and how it makes sense to them and they understood the ideas and they applied it to some project that they are working on. Yeah. But when I first discovered it, it was overwhelming. Yeah. I, it's not just like an everyday blog where you find short no. posts which outline the ideas in plain language so anyone can understand. It's actually pretty scientific. And yeah. it actually makes you wonder why was this not published in some kind of scholar journal? Because I, I've yeah. read academic papers which are much, much worse and void of any meaning. They, they just use the scientific lingo and jargon to, to sound smart, but they don't yeah. say anything of substance. They just repeat the, the buzzwords like trust minimization, social scalability, um, and, and, and stuff like that. Um, unforgeable scarcity, uh, unforgeable uh, costliness, and other, and other terms that Nick uses, uh, or trusted third parties are security holes. Many terminology that uh, Nick has created and, and, and uses in, in his blog posts and papers. Yes, a lot of people use them just, just to give the impression that they are 
deep, uh, deeply knowledgeable of what uh, Nick uh, writes and, and blockchain in general, like using blockchain as a, as a term in itself or AI. We, the normal humans, we, we like to use uh, like these things as buzzwords to, for personal marketing or for marketing of our projects. Yeah, but I agree with you, they, that doesn't necessarily, they, they actually either understand in some cases or either believe also in the principle. Um, yeah, in my case, I, 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 don't, I can't claim that I understand, but I, I can claim that what I understand uh, uh, from not only from Nick Sabo, but from Tim May, um, with whom I had a lot of interaction in the last uh, three years. Um, Elaine O, oh, another thinker. Um, Alfini, uh, Wei Dai. Um, when you read all these things from, from cypherpunks, uh, it's incredible. And I read them many times, sometimes the same thing many times. For example, Satoshi Nakamoto, the Bitcoin paper, I, I read it at least 30 times. And, um, and uh, what I do just as a person, personal methodology, when, when I find a point that I don't understand, that's where I go and I turn into this uh, amateur scientist uh, and, and I start doing the research by myself. So, so Nick, in, in, uh, when, 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 it talks, when he talks about money, he talks about millennia, thousands of years, and stuff like that. Um, and he talks about specific forms of money that are proven to have been used as money, you know, like points, flints, salt, um, black pepper, um, wampum in, in North America, um, these shells in, in Northern California, etc. He, he proves everything and he uses papers and he cites papers, etc. To the speculative, um, area uh, uh, and, and I went and I am currently speculating that the first stone tools were used, were created um, 3.3 million years ago. It's called the Lomequi, Lomequi uh, industry. And maybe those were very rudimentary, were only used as, as, um, as uh, for their function, no? for cutting, for breaking bones of animals so they could eat the uh, the thing in the middle, I don't remember the name in English. Um, and, 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 and for eating more meat, which helped us uh, increase our brain, therefore live in larger groups, which later led to this world with huge societies. Um, um, but I think that later, um, Homo habilis, that were, was, was like 2.3 million years ago, the tools that they made were much more elaborate. They're called the Oldowan industry. And you can see that the shape and the aesthetics of the tools are not only for cutting, in my opinion. And, when Homo, and then Homo erectus, like 1.5, 1.8 million years ago, they, they created another industry called the Acheulean industry, which is incredible, incredibly sophisticated because they did bifaces instead of one face. They work the rock much more instead of just cutting flints and using the, the edge of the flint to cut. They, they actually created incredible shapes. When you see on, you can Google Acheulean industry, you can see many, many of these tools. And they, they made huge amounts of them. 
And not only that, they went to special places uh, to make them. They, they had like a division, like an economy, I would say. Um, there were specific places where they got special rock for their, for their tools. It seems that they were highly specialized. Some groups of Homo erectus were highly specialized. They got the stones, they, they, the, the raw stone, they worked it, they cut them into cores from the core, they cut that and, and they created the, the Acheulean tools. When you see them, the images, they're incredible, very, very uh, beautiful. They made a lot of quantities. Um, in the places where they made them, you don't find bones or anything else other than um, that they made them. However, they uh, spread in, in, in the regions. You have stashes of stones. Sometimes they find up to 200 stones unused uh, of these the stone tools. I mean, when I say stones, I mean the Acheulean tools, all stacked together, organized because there was erosion or, or earthquakes, but they're all together in one place as if it was a bank. In my, that's what I speculate. Seems that they made them in one place. Somehow they got to the hands of other groups. I don't think it was the same groups. Groups put them in different places, stashed in, in stashes as if they were like a treasure, and they never used them. That means to me that it's similar to gold and Bitcoin. You put them in a vault or in a very safe place and just keep it there. And, and, and some of them... Uh, in other places like cage, etc., you can see that the tools were used and you find them together with bones and stuff like that. So it seems some anthropologists are, are noticing that there's like a cycle of the life cycle of these tools where they went from one place, then to another place, they were stored, then they were used in another place. But when they were used, they only find two or three, they don't find 500 or 200 or 150. So that seems to me, if when I extrapolate what I read from Nick and what he discovered of the history of money and all, the, all this connection to biology, that maybe it's not only 50,000, 100,000 or 200,000 years old. Maybe money is 3 million years old or at least with Homo erectus, 1.8 million years old. So that's what I'm doing. Yeah, you have some quite peculiar fascinations, which are even more fascinating when you share them and you talk about them. <laughs> and I, I like the concise and compressed way in which it was presented. I guess not many people who listen to this podcast will actually go and read the articles, but that's fine. At least after they have listened to it, they, they will have learned something new. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. I recommend people, if, they, if they're interested in going even further back, um, I'm not saying that Nick doesn't think this. Maybe he thinks it, but as a, as a scientist, I think that he only writes what he can prove factually and he can reference to. Uh, I, am, I, I am free to speculate and write all these things that I do and, and, and on social media, these uh, speculative explanations, because I'm not a scientist and I don't, I don't want to pretend that I, that I am a uh, someone that has everything, everything proven. Just my, my, in my mind, when I read all of these papers from anthropologists and, and uh, ethnographers, and then when I see their studies of um, stone tools in the past, 
And in parallel, when, when you see all the anthropology of uh, the evolution of Homo, now starting with Australopithecus afarensis, and then Homo habilis, and then Homo erectus, which was, they were alive or between 1.8 and 100,000 years ago. So it was a very successful variation of our species. And then Homo heidelbergensis, and that, that, that line gave rise to Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. I, I, when I, the more I read and the more I, I associate with Nick Sabo's uh, writings, the more I see that a system like Bitcoin is totally related and totally analogous to all to human behavior in the last three million years. Uh, maybe I'm doing the connections like artificially in my mind, but I actually, I actually go point by point. I read papers, I watch videos. I mean, all these anthropologists, they're, they're all over YouTube because they are National Geographic. They're incredible people, uh, incredible scientists. And then the other line of, of uh, reading that I do is to confirm everything with biology as well. When I, when, when, when I, when I say biology, I mean um, genetics. I read, for example, the book Origin of Species uh, by Charles Darwin. And then I read um, The Selfish Gene by, by Richard Dawkins. Those two books I recommend everybody to use because they, they provide the full uh, no, evolution is a fact. And Darwin gave the top-down explanation of his observations in the 1800s. And Charles Dawkins explained bottom-up how evolution works from the genes, from the level of the genes. Uh, and then there's another author called, uh, and scientist called uh, John Minor Smith, that he, he died in, in the early 2000, I think 2004. But he wrote the paper uh, called The Logic of Animal Conflict, where, he, where I found the connection with biology uh, in the sense that he found, and he was the, first, the person who invented or he connected game theory, and he transformed it, he transformed it into evolutionary game theory. It's, it's incredible and uh, very useful to analyze and model these systems. But what he realized is that when two, when two rivals in the same species and social animals would encounter each other, uh, even though they hated each other, they didn't trust each other, and they had the tools like the jaw, the fangs, etc., to kill each other, they don't. They didn't fight. They would find each other. They do. But they, maybe they would do some act, some some acting out of uh, aggression, and then they would they would leave. And that was a puzzle in in biology. And what he discovered is that territory devices like territory, or who came first, uh, or who's larger and who's smaller, were conflict minimization devices. And he that in, in that paper and, and you can see videos of him in YouTube called the logic of uh, uh, the logic of animal conflict. So he solved the puzzle because he said, okay, if, if, if two bears, two male bears are fighting for the same resource, it could be a female or it could be um, uh, food and they encounter each other, they have the tools. Why don't they actually fight and one kills the other and get the female or get the resource? Well, no, it's because they, first, it is very costly for both to engage in that fight. 
So even if you win and the other one dies and you win, you still may have lost a lot of or incurred in a, in a very high cost just by fighting and the risk to your life in, with the wounds and all that just to get whatever payoff you were, you were looking for. Uh, so that, 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 that's the, the first part of the logic. The second part of the logic is then how do you break the symmetry? If, if two bears encounter and they're competing for the same resource, what decides who wins? And he discovered that, for example, if, the, if one of the bears was there first, in all of the cases, or the great majority of the cases, the one who came second would be the one that loses. In other species, it's just territory. When one, when one, um, when one individual comes and realizes that there's a resource, but realizes at the same time that it's already a marked territory by another equivalent or similar um, individual, the one that is not the owner of the territory leaves. Um, so that was for me incredible, an incredible finding because that explains money and that explains private property, for example, in, in between humans. Uh, why, why, don't I go, why don't I go in front to, to, to my neighbor's house and steal their beer, for example, if I want beer? Well, because first I'm going to incur in a cost because the other guy is also going to hit me back. No? And the other one is because my brain has evolved to accept private property as a conflict minimization device. If you extend that, you reach to a point where we evolved to use money as a conflict minimization device. The reason why uh, I go to a store and instead of stealing, I give them money is because it's much less costly for me and for the store owner to engage in that kind of transaction than be stealing from each other all the time. So that's, that's what I recommend, to read all these things, and that's the connection of biology that I do. That, that's extremely fascinating. And when you think about it, Bitcoin uses a similar game theory, which yes. I think that's the revolutionary part, because I guess the programming and the underlying protocol is not so difficult in terms of computer science, mm -hmm. or at least so I heard, because I'm not one to evaluate this. I don't have the competence but the true innovation which came with it was this situation in which every participant had much more to win if he or she was to play by the rules of the system exactly. than to actually try. So this is a resolution or a way in which the Byzantine problem, the problem of the Byzantine generals got solved. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, the, the Byzantine uh, general's problem was solved because proof of, proof of work proves that the whole network worked at the same time in the same message because it's the only way that message could be created because probabilistically, if only three generals were working, they would take much more than 10 minutes. Um, but the cypherpunks, I mean, I, I, what you said before that Bitcoin is exactly all, this, all these things, I totally believe in that. I think that Bitcoin is first about anthropology, biology, conflict minimization, economic behavior, evolution game theory. It's all those things first. And then cypherpunks were so brilliant that they implemented everything using cryptography. And they're so brilliant they, they, that Satoshi, for example, and, and using Nick Sabo and Hal Feeney as, as, as his influence, 
They created Bitcoin replicating all these things. And I think that they basically replicated human behavior of, of the last at least 3 million years. And not only that, but it's successful. Bitcoin, it's, if you think about it, it's just a, an input, a number in some electronic place. It doesn't have any intrinsic value. It's just something that we value because it was very costly to make and um, it is very scarce, scarce. And therefore we can use it just as a stone tool three million years ago, or just as salt a thousand years ago in, in Italy, or maybe just as black pepper in India, or as, a, as these special woven clothes with the Incas to exchange it because the other person also values that because it's a conflict minimization device, because it's a unit that you can move it between people. Uh, cancel trust, so you don't need trust, uh, and gain products from that in a much less costly way than going fighting everywhere, like pimps today. When you, when you, when you see uh, today, they still have the old model. They only live in very small groups, up to 50 or 60 or 70. Um, and to interact with other groups, they only kill each other or they're separated, but there's no trading. There's no favors. There's not only all, all those things, um, reciprocity, protection, the grooming, etc. It's all within the group. They never do it outside of the group. I think that our, our invention as humans, we have, in this case, the back 4 million years ago was first bipedalism to, to, to stand up and then I think that it's the other way around. Our, our brains are big because it's proof that there was a pressure to act in larger groups. People say it the other way around. They say that first in big, and then we could um, interact in larger groups. I think it's the other way around. The pressure was because we needed to survive, we needed to interact in larger groups, and that's why the brain had to grow. And that's why we, we needed to eat. Because when, when you are vegetarian, those, these like chimps, etc., they need huge gut and huge stomach and smaller brain. So because the brain uses a lot of energy. So we had to eat meat just to enable our brain to be bigger. And our brain had to be bigger because we needed to interact in groups. If not, we would die. Uh, you're making me feel bad right now for being a vegetarian. <laughs> yeah why not the, the, what I just told you is the basis for a lot of carnivores in, in the Bitcoin uh, space and, and Bitcoin, Bitcoin maximalists but I don't think that they, they do all those connections I, what, what, what they're doing is that they're just uh, pragmatically saying yes we evolved to eat meat and meat is safe to eat and very healthy <laughs> okay so when I think about this situation what Satoshi and Nick Stable Mm -hmm. I think about the situation that we had with Newton and Leibniz. They both had mm -hmm. similar discoveries in different parts yeah. of the world. We don't know if mm -hmm. Satoshi is American or Japanese or from no. any other part. But one ended up becoming famous and getting mm -hmm. cited and being the symbol of innovation. Mm -hmm. Whereas the other ended up just being there. And I feel like Big mm. Sabo got, got, you know, the worst deal of the situation because his implementation of BitGold, which I'm not sure if it ever worked, but it was 
so similar and that he was so close to achieving the same technological prowess. Mm -hmm. Somebody else just took all that study and all that research and put into practice something which maybe was obvious to mm -hmm. an outside observer. And yeah. I don't know. If I were him, I'd be furious. But he seems to be no, dealing I, just I he, okay with the idea that somebody else did it. My observation is that Nick is extremely supportive of Bitcoin and blockchains in general. They, they achieve all the goals that he had, he had been working on all the cypherpunks for 30 years. And, and uh, even though it has different design than Bitcoin, but Satoshi, like all cypherpunks and, and any good scientist, they credit always. They're, they're, they're the, the people who came before them, no? And the people who, who created the, the, the systems that um, preceded them, no? So Satoshi formally said that he was inspired by Bitgold of Nick Sabo and uh, RPOW by Halpini. And in, in the white paper, he also credited uh, Adam Back, who created uh, the proof of work system, which is the central key, I think. And then he credited uh, Wei Dai, who had written in 1999 a similar system uh, as Bitcoin, no? with notes and a ledger and stuff like that. Why don't we know so much about Wei Dai? I, I think that, um, I don't know, I, I never thought about that, but I think that he's very reserved. He doesn't want to appear in many places and, and participate in the community. I don't know if he even uses Bitcoin. For example, when, when, when I used to interact and, and Tim May, he, sometimes he, he said that he hated Bitcoin. Not really that he hated Bitcoin, but he hated all the people around it and all that and, and never bought Bitcoin, he said in an interview um, and stuff like that. So that, uh, the fact that you're a cypherpunk, etc., doesn't mean that, you, they, that they own Bitcoin. Um, but uh, I, I don't know, uh, and, and then the, the, the only piece that I have read of Weidai is just that B-Money piece. I, I haven't read or I haven't seen reference to other work of himself. Yeah, he's very obscure. But you had this unique privilege to get to meet the May, and he passed last month. It was yes. unexpected and unfortunate that it happened. Yes. And what was he really like? I only read an interview in which he spoke about Bitcoin and he was disappointed in the ways it, it was just turning into a new PayPal with centralized exchanges doing KYC and AML. So Yeah, yeah. It, well, no, not, not Bitcoin itself, but, that, but the Coinbase and all that were, were like PayPal's. Uh, Bitcoin, is, Bitcoin itself is, is safe, no? Um, yeah, but what, what he wrote, for example, he, he gave an interview, I'm going to look it up on YouTube, um, that is very good. I, I recommend you to, to watch it or, or listen to it um, with um, J.W. Weatherman. Look it up on, on YouTube. J.W. Weatherman, uh, an interview with uh, Tim, Tim May. And then he wrote the 10-year article on Coindesk um, that was a request of Coindesk that they asked him to write something about Bitcoin, the 10-year anniversary, and it's a long article. And um, 
exactly what he says in that article and exactly what he says in the video, which is a one hour interview, is exactly what he used to say when I interacted with him. Um, the things that he liked Bitcoin, the things that he didn't like, that he had no Bitcoin because he didn't find the real value um, uh, for him personally, you know, that he had stocks and gold and stuff like that, but he didn't have Bitcoin um, because he, did, he didn't need to transfer it uh, across borders. He just lived in wherever he lived in the US and, and he didn't need it for more. Um, that's, that's, um, I think that I find that is a very strong characteristic in cypherpunks, no? the ones that I know, no? Tim, uh, Nick, um, Elaine, and when I, when I read Alfini, they, they are always very, not, not, not skeptical, but very down to earth. They're not like normal humans like us that we get excited about Bitcoin and we start dreaming of the future. They, they just look at things the way they are. They're down to earth and they only uh, talk about things that they can prove. They're very rational. Uh, and I think that Tim May was exactly like that, very rational. And whenever he had to be skeptical, he was skeptical. And I think it was also a way of driving the rest of the group to be more um, concise and thorough in what they were doing. For example, if he was skeptical about Bitcoin, it's like having a, like a paternal figure or a fatherly figure that is never that tells the, the son or the daughter that he's never satisfied with what they do. So the son and the daughter are trying to be better all the time. So I think that he, sometimes uh, I thought that he uh, played that role um, when communicating, no? Always being skeptical and, and, and whatever people did was not enough to satisfy. So people had to go back and work even more, like, like a son and a daughter who was trying to prove to their parents uh, that they're better, no? Yeah, but that's always productive. Yeah, super. But it makes me wonder, why, why was it not David Tom who was that father figure for everybody who was involved in the idea of digital money and cryptocurrencies? Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't go as far back as the 80s when Chum was, was like the strongest figure. Fortunately, he's now back, so that's amazing. I, I was a little bit disappointed that what he promises is like the ones that we don't like, no? The, he promises with Elixir, his new system, he promises full privacy, full scalability, full security, global, and 100 million uh, transactions per second. So that, that was disappointing. <laughs> Um, but many were very happy that he's back and, and he, he, he has a, I think he has a, a very strong emphasis in privacy rather than, than the fundamentals of money as Bitcoin. Yeah, but how is it privacy? Because as far as I could see, the way of signing up for Elixir was to fill in a form in which you had to give away your name and address and, you know, yeah, all the yeah. KYC requirements. I don't know. So yeah, I don't know. I, I didn't even pay attention when, when they promised the, the, the typical three things, scalability, performance, and, and, and privacy, everything in the same place, uh, I stopped paying attention. I do the same with many others. No? I, that doesn't mean that I don't respect the uh, Chaman and previous work. 
Um, and that doesn't mean that he actually discovered uh, the, all these things. Maybe he has a new system that we can't think about. That, that is very, um, that solves everything at the same time. If there's anything that I've learned in my 26th and almost 27 years of life is that we should never <laughs> underestimate the elders. They can yes. always surprise us. We, we look at them and say, oh, so what can you do? You're so old, you can barely move. And I doubt that <laughs> you can come up with anything intelligent or anything <laughs> that improves what we think is good. And it's their stubbornness and it's their idea that they stick to something which was the norm back in their day mm -hmm. that enables them to come up with something that we as a newer generation wouldn't have conceived. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. I agree also, and, and I think it's totally natural for the younger generations to be skeptical of the older generation. That's also uh, uh, healthy, um, because if not, they would stick to the old stuff all the time and never invent anything. But yeah, all, all these uh, dynamics uh, are interesting. But that's how the cypherpunks came around. That's why they were called cypherpunks. Yeah. <laughs> they were a new generation which opposed the older norms and they wanted to build a world for themselves in which cryptography exactly. was the norm for their interactions. Yeah. And I'm not sure, I cannot think of projects which were successful outside of Bitcoin. They did have attempts, but they all came short to one way, I, one way I or another. I think that Tor... Tor comes from cypherpunks, the Tor network, and then the movie network, what's the name of the, the one that where you move files, movie files. Then Wikileaks, the leader oh, yes. was cypherpunks, then, then Tor is this net private network, no? where everything is encrypted. Then the one that, um, where you move here, here, to here, movies so bad with names file sharing peer-to-peer -peer file sharing when there's a system um, so they invented many many things that led to Bitcoin no peer-to-peer -peer technology and other stuff I think that maybe the the most high profile now is Bitcoin and I think that one of the reasons, if not the main reason, is because people can BitTorrent. BitTorrent is the one that I was saying. I think BitTorrent also comes from a cypherpunk. Um, and uh, when I, I was saying Bitcoin is very uh, high profile because people can get rich, and that's high motivation for everybody to pay attention. Right. <laughs> because in the end, that's what we care most, even though... I guess some inventions like BitTorrent are much more influential or, or at least le leading up to Bitcoin. They allowed us to send files in a way that could not be intervened with, like in the case of Napster or ad other applications that we had in the 90s and early 2000s. Yeah. And Napster depended sufficiently on a, cent uh, a centralized third party to be able to be closed by the government. Also Me down. Mega Upload, which was another website on which you, you would just... Yeah, that was very easy. They just made a raid 
they did a raid in New Zealand and that's it. <laughs> yeah, the founder is, is going to be in prison for life, I think. Yeah. That, that's a decentralization in a way is a conflict minimization device. Uh, as, as I explained before, because, you know, you know, when Wei Dai wrote that he liked Timothy May's um, concept of crypto cryptography and the community enforced or protected by cryptography, uh, where, where government was not present, or violence was not present, but not because it was stopped, but because violence was not useful in the first place, because to break cryptography requires so much energy. That in itself is a conflict minimization device. For example, if you want to go to, from point A to point B, and there's nothing in between, you just go in a straight line. If you go from point A to point B and there is a huge wall, you have to go through the cost of going around the wall and then going to point B. The wall can be a conflict minimization device because if, if it's sufficiently big, um, the wall, mountain, whatever, no, whatever could be a natural uh, feature, uh, it's so big that you're gonna say, okay, I'm not gonna even try to go to point B. I'm gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna even try. I'm gonna, I'm gonna spend my energy in something else. So the the thing in the middle, whatever constituted the the block or the obstacle, is a conflict minimization device in the sense that. The individual is always measuring reality to see how to reach their goals with the least expenditure of energy possible or with the least cost possible. So when you impose a cost, <clears throat> that cost, if it's effective and well-designed, actually changes behavior of the individuals, of the other individuals. Um, when I lost, I lost uh, my line of thought, I don't know why I was telling you this. You were saying about the relationship between the May and Wei Dai. Ah, yes, and Wei Dai. So Wei Dai, what he said is that he liked the concept that Tin Mei had had explained, which is a place where people have rights and property and agreements and interact between each other, where violent violence is not present because violence is not useful at all. It's not even worthwhile attempting because to break cryptography requires so much energy. Okay. And that's, and, and that's, and that's the concept of Bitcoin. People, I, I'm not stealing your Bitcoins and not because it's not possible, but I could, I could try to steal your Bitcoins, but it's so costly to, to steal them. I mean, to reverse your private key uh, is so costly. It would take all the computers in the world a million years of computing power to just break your key. So I'm not going to go through the, uh, that path. Um, the most, like some people are saying, the least costly path is to actually steal your, 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 your private key. So that's why private key uh, security is so important. So, so what I'm saying is Bitcoin is, is this, is the first step in this cypherpunk utopia where or ideal where at least money with Bitcoin is as secure as Wei Dai and Tim May, right? 
actually have another question for you. And I know this is called the Bitcoin takeover and we're supposed to talk about the king of cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. But I'm often confused when I talk about Ethereum. And mm -hmm. I think the narrative about it has shifted so many times. It was a world computer, then it was a way for people to print their own money and establish incentives in the form of tokens. So mm -hmm. this led to an ICO machine. And then yeah. it was a smart contract platform. Yeah. And it had all these buzzwords and ways of being rebranded into something else. But it's, it's hard for me mm -hmm. to comprehend sometimes what is the primal need that it tries to solve? Um, I, I work for Ethereum Classic, which is the original Ethereum. E e Ethereum, without the term Classic after it, is the fork of Ethereum Classic. I was part of a community in 2014 when everything started. And yes, I used the buzzwords like world computer and uh, ether is oil and stuff like that. In my case, I used those things first because at the time I was learning about all, all of these technologies and, uh, and how they work. And um, so, so um, I didn't have every, everything so clear in my mind. And second, because it's very useful to create some, at least some buzzwords and explanations that are easy to understand for the rest of the public. No? For example, an, a buzzword or a terminology that is simplification that is used for, for Bitcoin is digital gold. Many Bitcoin people say it's digital gold. It's just, a, it's, it's just um, an analogy that you do so that others who are new um, find it easier to understand. In the case of, um, of Ethereum Classic, I think it's, it, is, it is correct to say that it, it's about decentralized computer uh, computing. Um, where, whether it's a decentralized computer is not the same because my laptop that I have in front of me is a Mac and it's incredible capacity and speed and performance. And Ethereum Classic is extremely slow. It's, it's like a really, it's truly like a small device in 1999 in terms of computing power and speed. So, so um, it's not really the world computer. That, that's a marketing device. It's, um, it's, it's only a, decentralized, a secure decentralized computing network. And it's very inefficient because it's the same, the same principles as Bitcoin. And it's um, and very costly. Uh, that means that a transaction costs, I don't know, one cent or two cents or something like that. Whether in my computer it's cost much less than that. And in the future, when Ethereum Classic grows and, it, and it's because of its uh, limited capacity, as more people use it, the transaction fee is going to go even higher. Now it could go up $50 or $100. And that's why everything needs to be built on top you know, with sidechains. Uh, in terms of the, the attitude of, of, of using marketing words, etc., I think there's like a spectrum of people Someone like me, I use marketing words. I am a marketing person and I understand that to communicate many difficult things, you have to simplify them and use terminology like world computer and, and uh, it's oil, not digital gold to differentiate from, from Bitcoin and stuff like that. But at the same time, I acknowledge that there's people, other people that use it just for inflating their projects 
and 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 uh, and and selling their projects. And there, there's even further in the in the spectrum. There's people that are directly scammers that use all that terminology and you and uh, idealistic views and and uh, and sometimes they use scientific papers and all that to 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 explain them just to steal money from others. No? So I, I acknowledge that that has happened on primarily on Ethereum, but the, the group that was like that in the original Ethereum, which is Ethereum Classic, we were all together. When, when Ethereum split, 90% of the community went with that. I also went with that group, well, at least until, 19, uh, until uh, 2018. That group, they were very um, focused on uh, marketing, and social things like like uh, equality for people in the world and stuff like that and and on selling all this marketing uh, jargon to people like and then and then they are the same ones who promoted ICOs in 2017 in my case i stayed for 3 years i'm not saying that i am a great person or anything like that just saying that within the group i was i was the the a voice that i was always fighting for them not to be so focused on social issues and not so focused on scaling fast and innovating so fast, but I was trying to convince them to be more focused on security. Uh, so I was against proof of stake, against sharding, against the Dow hard fork. That was a huge fight. And I was a, a very little mi minority. I didn't stay with Ethereum Classic, although I supported Ethereum Classic and I traded Ethereum Classic every now and then um, because I thought that the other side had the network effects. But then in, in 2018, when Coinbase uh, decided to list it, then I, then I definitely moved to Ethereum Classic and I'm fighting for Ethereum Classic to grow, et cetera. And it's totally aligned with my, my beliefs. No? Uh, but in terms of why all these buzzwords and Ethereum and the ICOs and all that. Uh, I, yes, I agree that uh, I was part of it and we were inflating uh, things a lot. <laughs> so how does Ethereum Classic supplement what Bitcoin already offers? Uh, yes, why, why, what's the reason? One of the reason is that Bitcoin is very limited. You can only move money from point A to point B and that's it and store it or value. Anything on top of Bitcoin that is not the model of channels like, um, like a Lightning Network, which is amazing, is not trust minimized yet. You need, a, for example, Liquid is a sidechain and Rootstock, RSK, is another sidechain on Bitcoin and they both need a federation. They both need 20, 25 private companies to be the, no, the, the, the big nodes in the network to secure the network to hold the money on one side and to deposit it on the other and then to move it back. So evidently that doesn't work. It's not, it's not what we're looking for. It, they're just a, a glorified trusted third party. Um, the, what what uh, Ethereum Classic offers is that it is Bitcoin in the, in, in the basic principles and proof of work limited the same um, like a fixed monetary policy, uh, ethos of immutability, minimizing forks as much as possible. Everything is, is exactly the same. The only difference is that it has during completeness integrated into the base layer. 
So it's a, it's a currency and also has Turing completeness. Turing completeness is basically the ability to store and run full programs, software programs, which Bitcoin cannot do. And the solution that Ethereum Classic brings is exactly that, that has Turing complete, so it can run, store and run software programs. And that's why, and these programs, because the network is decentralized, once you store them, they become decentralized. Just like, like when, you, when you have a Bitcoin in Bitcoin, it's a decentralized Bitcoin. A software program in Ethereum Classic is a decentralized software program. So that's the only difference. And um, does that mean that Ethereum Classic replaces Bitcoin? No. No, because Bitcoin, I think it's larger. It's always going to be more secure because Ethereum Classic is more complex. So it could have some security holes and, and glitches in the future. And it needs upgrades, so more hard forking than Bitcoin. Does that mean that Bitcoin is the only answer and so Ethereum Classic could not exist? No. Not only because Ethereum Classic has doing completeness and the decentralized programs, uh, but also because I don't think that the whole world, um, 8 billion people in 50 years or 9 billion people, are going to do and build all the systems only on top of one blockchain like Bitcoin. I think that they're going to tend to diversify, even if the other blockchain is not very secure or, ha or has at least a different security model. I think that people are going to diversify. So in, in my mind, I am guessing that there are going to be four or five networks in the future. Uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum Classic, maybe Monero, maybe Litecoin, and some other network. Maybe the other network could be actually a proof of stake network, even if it's totally less secure but it has a trade-off of security. Which network is going to be that fifth network? In my mind, maybe it could be Ethereum, which is, is the leading one, and they're going to move to proof of stake. Maybe it's going to be EOS, or maybe it's going to be Cardano. I don't know. So let's say 10 years from now, where do you see Ethereum Classic and Bitcoin? not in terms of price, but in terms of adoption and in terms of achieving their supposed goals. And Bitcoin is trying to become more like sound money by allowing fungibility, whereas Ethereum Classic is trying to run as many decentralized applications mm -hmm. and scale. Yeah, for which it needs much sound money as well. So ETC as a currency is also sound money. Maybe a few degrees less secure than, than Bitcoin because of this complexity, but it's also very, very sound money. That's why it has the same uh, monetary policy. In the case of Bitcoin, it's going to have 21 million. In the case of Ethereum Classic, it's going to have 210 million. So it's practically identical. Ethereum Classic, because of its complexity and, and it needs a different form of uh, creating blocks than, and it has uncle blocks, the range is not fixed at 20. 210 million. It's 210 to 230 million. It depends on how the network behaves in the next uh, 80 or 100 years. Uh, so how do I see it in, in 10 years? I think that Bitcoin definitely is going in the path of success. I, I have like a very strong confidence that Bitcoin is, is going in the path to success and it's going to be exactly the vision that people have. Digital gold, high value transfers, central banks are going to have their reserves in Bitcoin. All that is and it's going to be global, free to move around the world. 
I think that that vision is going to happen for Bitcoin. In the, in the case of Ethereum Classic, unfortunately, uh, although I, I am still very optimistic, um, this week we went through something that it was very uh, like a strong blow to, to Ethereum Classic and the community. And that is because it is still more small. It, it's a half a billion dollar network and it has also less hashing power than, than Bitcoin, significantly less than Bitcoin and, and 20 times less than Ethereum, the current Ethereum. Um, there was a there was a 51% attack on, on the network. It didn't break the network or anything, but the attacker could reverse transactions. That is to create double spend. So that happened this week. I think it started in it definitely started January 5th, where Coinbase suspended um, deposits and withdrawals when they when they saw it, and then the sixth. Uh, we were the community. We were alerted by Pierre Rochard, and then the seventh uh, Coinbase wrote a full report with everything that they saw. They they stole more or less two hundred twenty thousand ETC, and it was a twenty. So it wasn't a breach of security internally of ETC, but it was a big miner that now disappeared, uh, but uh, appeared for for three days, and they and they uh, created fifteen. Uh, double spends and they stole 220,000 ETC. So that's um, a problem for uh, for Ethereum Classic because it's small. So we cannot do much other than than continue building the stack as we planned, and to ask the whole world to use uh, from 2,500 to 5,000 confirmations uh, until we can minimize this attack. Uh, and the other solution is just for Ethereum Classic to continue and, and, and to grow and to, uh, and to become, become as big as uh, Bitcoin, for example. In that case, it's going to be highly secure. Uh, you have to bear in mind that 51% attack, any proof of work chain is vulnerable to that attack. Like Bitcoin is vulnerable. The only, the, the only difference between Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Ethereum Classic is that Ethereum Classic, it, it's... It's, it's much smaller, so the cost to perform the attack is much smaller as well. But both Ethereum and Bitcoin uh, have the same uh, security threshold of 51%. So they could go through the same thing, although it's much less likely. We have to, as a, as a network, uh, Ethereum Classic has to grow to get to that point where it is much less likely to attack. So my vision before this attack was that ETC was going to be worth more or less $5,000 in 10 years uh, because of an analysis of, of the IoT industry comparisons to, to um, other systems and uh, amount of transactions, et cetera. And doing that analysis on a unit economics basis gave some people the, the, a unit value for ETC uh, of 5,000. In the case of... Um, uh, bueno, but now that this attack happened this week, of course, we, I have to acknowledge that um, just by having the principles and the design that we have is not enough. We also need to scale in size more, more hashing power, uh, and, and the community has to be larger for the network itself to be secure.
Okay, so ultimately the purpose of Ethereum Classic and in order to achieve its goal is to have this stronger and more advanced model of security. And that can all be, be guaranteed by a greater amount of hashing power, which secures yes. the network. And I guess yes. that will also happen as soon as ETH completely switches to proof of stake and there will mm-hmm. be no more mining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we speculate that when that happens, then the biggest um, network with that mining algorithm is going to be Ethereum Classic. Um, And normally when you're the biggest network in that niche, uh, in in proof of work, you are less vulnerable. And possibly all all that hashing power that is currently mining ETH may move at least a big portion to ETC because it's going to be the, the biggest network in that niche. And um, ETH, it may happen because ETH moved to proof of stake, or it may happen because ETH moved to another proof of work algorithm because with a social design mentality, they're trying to minimize ASICs. So they're, they're analyzing to, to move to programmatic proof of work, PROG, POW. And they're modifying their monetary policy again from three to two per block. So they're doing everything wrong. Yeah, that, that's your opinion. If you ask <laughs> Vlad, Vlad Zamfer, who's a fellow <laughs> Romanian, he's going to say that it's the most brilliant governance system ever conceived and it's <laughs> research. Absolutely. And, 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 and I saw the other day that uh, Nick Johnson, who's a, a core developer of Ethereum Classic, he did a poll saying, like, in a way, like, to, to trash ETC. He said, if, if there were double spends in, in, in Ethereum, would you reverse the double spends, yes or no? And I saw that more than 50% voted yes, they would reverse the double spend, which is something that would never happen in ETC. Uh, so, that, so that shows that there's a very different culture there in Ethereum. Yes, but... If I recall correctly, this summer there was this discussion about once again hard forking ETH and help some people who got scammed in ICOs. Oh, yeah. yeah, they talk about that, that all the time. Fortunately, there are some people in the community that are stopping it. But I think that at some point in the future, it's, gonna be, it's going to happen. Imagine one of the companies that lost like $100 million there, or 150 is uh, RT. Parity Technology. And Parity Technologies, the founder is Gav Wood, Gavin Wood. And he's one of the founders of Ethereum Foundation and Ethereum. He, he wrote the yellow paper. Um, he's very influential. And, and in the past, ETH has shown that when there is influential people with an opinion or with a need, that they're going to, re- they're, they're going to satisfy that need. For example, the DAO hard fork. So yeah, I think it's going to happen. When they move to proof of stake, something, some point in, in some hard fork, they're going to slip in the reimbursement to, to all those people. Maybe. That, that's always possible. There is only yes. this possibility that once you do something, it creates a precedent in everything. And mm. you have proven that it's possible. You have showed the world that you are willing to do it. 
and mm-hmm. under the necessary amount of pressure, you will most likely give in and do it once again. Exactly. And not only that, but not only because you did it, because your behavior ever since has been totally consistent. For example, moving proof of stake, creating sharding, um, having all of these debates about changing, um, changing the core protocol all the time, changing the monetary policy. That's all consistent with someone that's, that, that with a sufficient, sufficiently strong will or, or argument. If, if they tell them to, to reverse the chain, they're going to do it again. All of their behavior is consistent. Yeah, lucky, luckily, I don't think we'll have any hard forks in Bitcoin unless maybe they want to get rid of SHA-256, their mm-hmm. mining algorithm. If it gets broken, they will need to hard fork yeah. and switch to something yeah. else. And I think that's perfectly legitimate. I think it's when, when there's a security breach or a security threat, and you have another technology that can be even more secure than the current technology, in that case, I support forking Bitcoin. But so far, it has resisted with only yeah. soft forks and adjustments. Mm-hmm. And they had SegWit, which I don't think half of the network uses it right now. I'm not sure. I haven't checked in a while. And they yeah. are going to have Schnorr signatures, which improve mm-hmm. both scalability yeah, yeah. and privacy. And they have many more plans, which actually... It's great that they settled all the scaling debates and they split into different thoughts, full of thoughts and camps. Yeah. That right now they can yeah. just focus on development and finding more innovative ways of actually helping the project I grow. I totally agree. I think uh, Bitcoin has a brilliant uh, roadmap and development team and ideas all these different groups and it's growing incredibly well with um, uh, Latin network, with sound, secure systems. It's, it's amazing. It's a, it's a great example for the rest of crypto and a great solution for the rest of the world. We, we can only dream. I mean, we can't even imagine <laughs> how, how far it can go. And I can yeah. just speculate how difficult it is for governments of the world to watch this technology grow, regardless of their opinion or coercion mm-hmm. or yeah. their attempts to promote their fiat currency. And I don't think at any point in the next 100 years, or at least in our lifetime, we will see fiat currencies getting replaced willingly by governments. On their behalf, there would be an action in which they give up on their power. They're going to say, we no longer issue currencies. We're going to accept this, which is not created by us, is not governed by us. It's all up to the individual to manage it. And our economy is going to depend on your financial choices. I think that's Mm -hmm. risky for any government ever. Yeah. Do. Yeah, they're, they're going to resist all the way and they're going to try to invent new ways to control things. They might even create, I think I've seen an idea of somebody to do an ERC-20 token, which replicates your Bitcoin ownership. So mm-hmm. it's basically a smart contract which gets established 
to give you a one-to-one ratio of tokens according to how much Bitcoin you, you actually hold. And after a while, if not all the amounts are claimed, the remaining supply of 21 from the 21 million is going to get distributed among the holders. So you yeah. basically create something which resembles proof of stake by owning something, you get uh-huh. much more. <laughs> I can't imagine how governments can trick Bitcoin users to do this because you basically give up on your privacy and you probably have to yeah. submit some kind of KYC. And from that point onwards, they can tax you much easier. Mm-hmm. They can find yeah. creative ways to make you give up on your hard money, actually, or their dumb money. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But one then- thing that you're going to find, one thing that you're going to find when uh, when I talk about Bitcoin is that sometimes I criticize parts of the security model, um, and sometimes I just do it on social media to be provocative. But at the same time. Uh, it is because there, there are things that I am observing that can be security holes in Bitcoin. Um, the, the two of the most ones that, that I uh, criticize are, uh, I'm saying this because you just mentioned that governments are going to resist it. And, and this is also the social layer, not humans trying to take advantage of other humans. No? That's natural biological behavior. Um, so so I, I was just thinking that Bitcoin has two things that are is going to enable that kind of social attack. Well, one is that the 21 million monetary policy is a political decision in Bitcoin. It's not, it's not a technical, uh, it's not enforced by proof of work. Proof of work um, basically creates the hash for each block and it, and, and it consumes a lot of energy, similar to gold, no? Um, um, but it only secures the block. Then, as a second step, when the block is created, arbitrarily, there is a, a, an account created and they deposit um, a balance, which is currently 12 and a half Bitcoins as a reward per block. That reward per block is just a, an agreement between the users and the nodes globally. It's something that can be changed with a hard fork. Uh, so if there is a sufficient social attack in the future, not now because the current philosophy of Bitcoin is very strong, but maybe in 10 years, 40 years, where miners are very powerful, etc., and they say, hey, guys, you know what? Now the, the block reward is only half a Bitcoin per block, and I don't like that. I want more money. Uh, so my threat is that if you don't pay me more, for example, raise it back to 10 Bitcoins or 12 and a half Bitcoins per block, uh, I'm not going to mine anymore. Uh, not only that, they can bribe with their, their big, they can bribe Coinbase and Sapo and all the companies that work on Bitcoin and bribe government officials and whoever is there in 40 years influencing Bitcoin. And they can actually force the change. So, so um, that is something that I see as a real threat. Miners have a very strong incentive to keep the block reward as high as possible. They don't have an incentive to keep the block reward as low as possible. So that means that if they get very big in the future, they are going to lobby to change the monetary policy in their favor. That's one security hole. The other security hole, which is related, 
is that side chains on Bitcoin require merge mining uh, and or drive chains. That means that um, the same miners that mine Bitcoin would be mining the side chains as well. So in the future, if Bitcoin is worth a trillion dollars and you have five trillion dollars in, in side chains, and if the only miners are the same miners that mine Bitcoin, that means that those miners are going to be mining six trillion dollars, not only the trillion dollars of Bitcoin. And that means that those miners are going to be very rich, very influential, and I call them those miners of the future. If they happen, I call them super miners. And those miners are going to turn into what today are Facebook, Google, Amazon, uh, and and, uh, and uh, Google and these and, and the centralized uh, tech companies. No, uh, where. Today, tech companies, Google and, and uh, Apple, they control, for example, the, the App Store and Google Play. So all the developers of the world, the 26 million developers, if they want to create a startup and put their apps available to the people in the world, they have, to, they have only two bottlenecks, and if the, uh, which are Google and Apple. And if those two say they don't like your app, you're out. And the same is going to happen with the miners. In the future, there's going to be four or five miners that control $6 trillion in value. They're going to mine Bitcoin and, and the side chains. And anybody who wants to do a new side chain or an innovation on any of those will have to ask for permission to the miners. So they're going to have a lot of power if Bitcoin enables merge mining and drive chains, or at least it's Merge mining is permissionless, but the, if they promote it and if they implement dry chains. Um, so I see those two things and they're complementary because the same miners, the same super miners are going to be the ones that change the monetary policy and fees and everything. So I still see, even though I am very pro Bitcoin and I see it's the future, etc., still has some threats. According to me, no, this is my personal opinion. I'm sure you're going to have many others like Jameson Lop and others who are going to argue exactly the opposite. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I hope I get Jameson Lop on the podcast. Jameson and also Truthcoin. His name is, he's the one pushing drive change, which I oppose. Paul Stork. Okay. I I recommend you uh, you um, interview Paul's talk about driving. He, the only bad thing about Paul is that he only likes to talk to scientists and and uh, and people like me uh, who are not scientists and to try to read his papers and watch his videos and who has an opposing opinion. He basically blocks blocks you because he, he only wants to talk to people who are equivalent in terms of knowledge. Uh, and that's uh, unfortunate because in these open systems, you have to deal with everybody. Do, do you think I would have any chance to get Nick Sabo? Um, he, he gives very few interviews. I don't know, but uh, uh, I can give you his email and you can try. <laughs> yeah, because it would be interesting to find out his opinion. When he envisioned BitGold, he had this idea of two layers which is very mm -hmm. similar to what we have today with Lightning. 
And it it is interesting to see how he thinks about mining and all these issues, which are maybe the main points of criticism right now. I think you would have at least you would have at least one million listeners in that podcast. (laughs) You know, when you think about it, maybe that I do it for the audience. So that uh, whatever, mm-hmm. they, they listen to my podcast. But there's also the selfish purpose of learning. Otherwise, this, yeah. this is like a pretext to have a conversation about something from which I learn a lot. And this yeah, is selfish yeah, in a way because it takes so many hours of reading and research to get to have the knowledge to have this kind of conversation. But it, it also helps yeah. me develop my vision and my worldview. So yeah, I'm sorry, audience. Absolutely. I'm also being selfish here, but not in the sense I don't really care about how many viewers or listeners I get. It's all about putting the information out there. Somebody wants to find it. Yeah. At some point, maybe it's going to be useful. Yeah. Maybe that my limited mind will not do anything with the information that I get. It's just a way of knowing, which in itself is pointless. But somebody else will actually listen to any of the conversations here and they will say, okay, this helps me solve this problem, which I have been having in my mind for quite some time. And I guess that's how (laughs) progress is made. Absolutely. I I totally agree with you. Doing doing these podcasts is a way of talking to people, understanding how to think and, and learning. I think it's amazing. I, 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 congratulations because the work you're doing is very good because you are really talking to very interesting uh, people. Now, I'm not saying me, but, uh, but for example, Jamison Lop and the others that you did um, the videos with uh, on Crypto Insider. And you ask very interesting questions and also you are very knowledgeable. You do your research. Uh, you know, I, I have many, many. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But if they no, got no, into are, details, you... they, they would just blow me away. I would be like, okay, that's all I got. I, I know about the surface uh, of all these technological ideas, but I cannot go into detail about it. I cannot explain how it works. I don't know how to code. So please bear yeah. me. Be, you uh, know, generous. Yeah, I don't, I'm not an engineer either, like we said at the beginning and not a developer. But, but again, when, when I talk to other journalists and, and uh, even some that are the, the, the leading ones in the crypto industry, and you tell them A and they write Z, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, you, you want to say something one, two, three in that order. And when they write it, they write it three, two, one, or two, three, one, one, three, two, one <laughs> in any order. Yeah, so, I think that we are. Thank you very much for your work. I'm happy that I get to do it, honestly. And mm-hmm. I'm happy that people actually care about what I do because otherwise, what's the point? <laughs> and I hope we get as many listeners. And thank you for your time. It has been over two hours that we have been yes. speaking. And awesome. this was, in some ways, enlightening. And that's a great pun enlightening, enlightening <laughs> network. <laughs> in the end we are marketing marketing animals <laughs> yeah i uh, guess 
Vlad, I, I thank you for your time and for doing this um, interview, this podcast uh, with me and to, for giving me the opportunity to talk about all the stuff that I think about and speculate about. So, so I thank you. Yeah, I hope you promote it too when it comes out. I will. Okay, so I hope we talk again some other time. Yes. yes. It's always a pleasure. I hope so too. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye-bye.